podcast where we explain bands. I'm your host, Olivia Ladd, a music journalist in Nashville, Tennessee. The premise of this podcast is I find a friend, musician, or other journalist in the Nashville music scene, and we discuss the history, discography, art, and influences surrounding our favorite cult bands. Bandsplainer is part of the We Own This Town network of podcasts based in Nashville. You can find more information at weownthistown.net. Bandsplainer is available for streaming on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. To keep up with the latest, follow Bandsplainer on Twitter at Bandsplainer. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Bandsplainer, the podcast where we explain bands. Today we are going to talk about Joy Division, which may be kind of a heavier episode. There's not a lot of discography to unpack here, but we're going to go through the history, talk about Ian Curtis and the style of their music and kind of what it did for post-punk overall. Today's guest is Alex Fowler, who's a DJ, musician, does all kinds of things. You can introduce yourself, talk about what you do around town. Sure. Hey, my name's Alex. By day, I process credit card data, and at night, I DJ as DJ Basketball, and I operate a record label on the side. Right now, it is called Dream Girl Records, but that name is about to change. Do like synthwave kind of stuff and a lot of like 80s influenced music for sure actually going to be releasing some post-punk this year which kind of fits with this podcast definitely besides that and I do some music on the side as well but that's basically it yeah nice which is yeah the perfect candidate for this podcast to talk about all things 80s synth post-punk um and also you should check out their uh DJ thing, which is Drama Club. He DJs with two other DJs. It's great. You should come out to an event if you are in Nashville and you're listening to this podcast. So we always start with like a short synopsis of the band. So Joy Division is a British post-punk band that ran from 1976 to 1980. And they're kind of considered pioneers or godfathers of post-punk. And they really kind of set the stage for that genre before it delved into goth rock or new wave or any of that kind of stuff. So they're a really important band. Now, like like we said, 1976 to 1980, that's only four years. So that's not a long time, but there's a lot to talk about here because it's a crazy story. I guess we can kind of begin talking about post-punk as a genre. So 1976 is peak. Like I've always said, I love music that's like around that era to early 80s. So like 1975 to 1983 or something is like favorite music ever. So post-punk is like coming about during this time and Joy Division is a really great example of like the British uh, side of that music movement. So it was called New Music at the time, music being M-U-S-I-C-K, like music. Um, And it was kind of a movement away from like the cliches of rock because punk rock, you know, in the early 70s started out with this like super DIY ethic, but as as things naturally you know, progress, it kind of got into a more commercial side for a lot of bands. So there kind of became this movement away to a more avant-garde approach to that type of punk. And it comes from a more variety of influences rather than maybe 
blues and typical rock kind of stuff. So you kind of start getting like dub and jazz and stuff like that. And it's all kind of danceable uh, is what post-punk to me is like, what's different about it, I guess you could say, Um, even though it is like, I would say like brooding dance music and Joy Division's case specifically. So Joy Division probably heard a couple songs, you know, if you're listening to this, but overall it's just kind of kind of dark I don't know so Ian Curtis is a singer he has this really bass baritone voice and that's kind of their signature thing and they really use like a sense of austerity to their advantage in their sound I would say overall is the best way to describe it and I would compare it as like like this is a really hard comparison to make and I feel like this is just like a populist angle to help people maybe understand if they aren't into it because they are so unique but like if I had to compare it to a couple bands I would say it's like a more melodic public image limited and like a darker wire uh kind of sound which which is pretty post-punk those bands were both around at the same time so they obviously have stuff in common but they are very very different bands like let me do clarify that Okay, so the main members of Joy Division are Ian Curtis, who's the singer, and Peter Hook is the bassist, Bernard Sumner is the guitarist and keyboardist, and Stephen Morris is the drummer. And so pretty much everyone, well, Peter Hook and Bernard Sumner, like, started the band, which we'll talk about in, like, five seconds here, but Ian came on after that, and Stephen Morris, they cycled through a couple drummers before him. And so a fun fact before we start is if you didn't know, Joy Division is the band that is the precursor to New Order. Um, So the members, the remaining members of Joy Division after it was finished started New Order, which is like, I guess, still a band. They're still playing. So that's pretty cool. Their actual formation began on July 20, 1976. And Bernard Summer and Peter Hook went to see the Sex Pistols in uh, England. They lived around Manchester, so I assume that's where this was. So they went to see the Sex Pistols, and they were like, we have to start a band, which is kind of funny to me, because I feel like the Sex Pistols are like, I mean, they're kind of a boy band, like of all bands to see. But I kind of get it. They had the whole stage persona. They were like, I don't care about the rock star trope. We're going to do what we want to do. So I guess that's kind of funny. So the next day after the Sex Pistols concert, Hook goes home and borrows 35 pounds from his mom and buys a bass guitar and they find people and start a band. So they like, I guess, find a drummer um, because Morris is not quite in the picture yet. So they put out like an advertisement, like a flyer, I guess, for a singer and Curtis like call, Ian Curtis calls to join and they like hire him on or like make him join the band on the spot because they knew him from other gigs and so they had asked one of their friends who was a woman to be the singer originally but she was like I'm too busy I just got a job at a factory which is kind of crazy that like the entire history of the band you know almost changed just because of that one thing uh I thought that was really interesting they weren't even going to put out an advertisement they were going to have a totally different singer during 1976 they hadn't really played any shows yet or put out music their original name was Warsaw after the David Bowie song Warsawa, Warsawa, and that's from his 1977 record Low, so this is beginning of 1977, they're really like forming things, they named the band that, and because of their connections in the like greater Manchester area music scene, 
they are friends with Pete Shelley from Buzzcocks and his manager, or the band's manager, Richard Boone. I think that's really interesting. I would love to do an episode on Buzzcocks. I think Pete Shelley is one of the great, like, sensitive punk poets of history, you know? Like, I think he's wonderful. He was, like, the super sensitive punk who was writing poetry over these, like, amazing, like, guitar riffs and stuff. Um, So that's interesting. That's kind of the circle they're in to kind of set the context. So, May 29, 1977, you know, almost a year after they decide to start a band, they have the solid lineup or whatever, and they play their first show at Electric Circus Nightclub in England, and they're supporting the Buzzcocks, Penetration, and John Cooper Clark, and I think the Buzzcocks were the ones headlining. And so they play this one show because it happens to be with a band like the Buzzcocks, they get, like, reviews in, like, NME and all these big publications and are, like, instantly on the map, which I think it's important to point that out here because the band only ran for, like, four, you know, really three years. The fact that they got, like, immediate exposure is really what, like, kept them going even as long as they did, I guess, Uh, what kind of jump-started it. So that July... They recorded, so July of 1977, they recorded their first five demo tracks in Oldham, England at Pennine Sound Studios. And on the way home from a recording session, I don't know the exact story, but I kind of found an article about this. They had Steve Brotherdale as the drummer, and he was like a really aggressive dude, and they got like some flat tire and he threw a fit. So they like fired him from the band, and the next day, Morris joined as the drummer and that was when they like said the band really felt like a like a family and the band was uh solidified in their lineup and everything um so this is when things really get started so there was another band called warsaw pact uh that was based out of london during i guess the summer fall of that year they changed their name to joy division as to not cause confusion and this is this is a weird fact, and this is why the band has caught a lot of, or when the band was active, they caught a little bit of flack for maybe the political things they incited, whether or not it was purposeful, which we will get into uh, when we talk about the first EP. But they named it Joy Division after a mention in the novel House of Dolls by Yehil de Nur, and I probably just butchered that name. It's like a German name. And it's it's like kind of sensitive content here but it's the name of a like a sexual brothel wing in nazi concentration camps and so it was like at least nine of those concentration camps actually had these and that's what the name of them was and um they they were interviewed by people um i found like an interview in the guardian where they're like what do you think about people that think you're like you know maybe citing this or not being sensitive enough to this issue like like literal nazis and they were like you know we're just trying to be sympathetic to like our ancestors that were in world war ii and we're not you know we're not taking the side of them but we just wanted to use the name i don't really know that's a it's kind of weird to me but you know you don't think of that like i discovered joy division on like Tumblr when I was like 15 because that like image of their first record was like so popular. It's like a classic hipster t-shirt or hipster imagery. So it was kind of weird to find that out. You know, I found it out a few years ago, but kind of a weird place to get your name from. But the the German literature and like 
uh, art references kind of is a theme throughout this whole thing. A couple of things I was really I was curious about. Yeah. Um, when you're saying thing about the Sex Pistols, um, what do you mean by like the boy band thing? I'm just curious. I just like, always thought Sex Pistols like a boy band, like because yeah. they were like they were um like boy band is in like like Backstreet, like that kind of like. Ma- I mean, I mean kind that- of yeah, but just I feel like so my personal opinion on the Sex Pistols is that like. Um, I mean, they were this band that was, like, created to be marketed, you know what I mean? Sure, and they weren't yeah. around for that many years. They did right. that, like, one tour and disbanded, like, their one big tour right. and disbanded by the time they got to California. And right. then Sid Vicious, like, kills his girlfriend, and that's why they're famous. Which is fine. Like, I visited the Chelsea Hotel to, like, see that room and everything. Yeah. But, um, I don't know. I've, I've always just thought, like, Public Image Limited is, like, a better Sex Pistols, personally. Yeah, yeah, totally. Anyway, that's my opinion on for Sex sure. Pistols <laughs> being a boy band. Yeah. Um, I was, the only reason I was curious about that is because, like, or the only reason why I was wondering is because, like, uh, like I agree with you on that. Yeah. But at the same time, like, it all they also, like, I feel like, the, I mean, just with the fact that, like, Susie Sue is, like, in the same boat as, mm-hmm. as Peter Hook and Bernard, yeah. you know, like, directly influenced from seeing them live and, like... Pretty much cites that as like oh they totally are important yeah I'm just saying like transcend they like oh they totally transcend the boy band thing but yeah but they are like that's more of my like trying to be like quick witted like they're a boy band but they totally are an important band like the Sex Pistols totally change things but they like I think that's because I didn't realize the Sex Pistols. Like, when I first was into them, it was kind of the same thing. I discovered them as a teenager. Like, I'm getting into British punk, and, like, I didn't realize they were kind of this band that was, like, this manager came in, found these guys, was like, let's make this band and market it as, like, this cool punk band and do your hair like this (laughs) and whatever. So it's kind of funny to think about that uh, for, I guess, people that don't know. But if you do... I'm sure you get it. So didn't Sid Vicious like suck at bass? Yeah, like, yeah, just, he couldn't like, even horrible. play the bass, which is which is a little bit inspiring. I'm yeah, like you don't really have right. to know how to. I mean, Peter Hook didn't know how to. Yeah, play bass. He until didn't because he, he bought the bass. Yeah, yeah, the next so, day like, after seeing Sid Vicious. So there you go. It is inspiring. It literally inspired Joy Division. Sorry. Yeah. So December of 1977, we're at the end of this like year. They record their first EP called An Ideal for Living. They recorded it for 400 pounds total, and this is before they really get into the post-punk sound, and they pull a lot of art rock influence. Like, I see, personally, in this EP a lot of, like, um, Roxy music kind of stuff here. And we'll talk about the release of it in a second, but they recorded it end of 1977. So that year, they also, on New Year's uh, Eve of 1977, they played their final gig as Warsaw, and they only listed it as that because they had, like, the notoriety so they could get a crowd, and that was in Liverpool, and then they played their first gig as Joy Division 25 days later on January 25th, 1978 at Pips Disco in Manchester, England, which is, like, their home base. Uh, so that's truly, like, the beginning of Joy Division, I guess, is that they've recorded the CP and play their first gig under the actual name. So then we get into 1978, and at the beginning of this year, RCA Records approaches the band after they play that show in Manchester, and they want them to record a cover of Keep On, Keepin' On by Nolan Porter, which is interesting because now looking back, they did record the cover, and a few other bands have, and, like, the bands who covered that song popularized it more than the original dude the r&b version of it i guess so they started working on that it took them like a couple months to start playing this and recording it 
and they were playing a lot of shows during this time. So at one show in particular, the the spring of 1978, they caught the attention of the DJ of the venue they were playing, which happened to be Rob Gretton, and he became their manager. And he's credited with uh, the two years he was with the band. He's like credited as their the reason they were commercially successful or successful in any sort of business manner. So during that time also, they they were pretty unhappy with the recording they did of that cover because whoever was producing it wanted to add a lot of like cheesy synthesizer to soften their sound because it was too harsh. So they just bought, they bought out of their RCA contract and were like, bye, we're going to do our own thing, which I'm glad they did. So that summer, in June 1978, they release the EP they recorded in Ideal for Living. So it was released as a 7-inch in June, and it sold out by September, so they released it as a 12-inch in October. And it's four tracks? Five tracks? Four or five, yeah. So they put it out, like, under their own label. I say that quote-unquote because it's almost like they made the label to put this out, but they called it Enigma. And you can hear these tracks on the compilation record Substance, which is like a posthumous uh, release from the band, which we'll talk about later. And once again, we kind of get into this weird imagery and reference thing because there's like a Hitler Youth drummer, like black and white image on the cover. And I don't know if they did that as shock factor or what, but... That's a thing, I guess. So in interviews, they, you know, they they were very clear that they didn't sympathize with that sort of ideology, but they did use it as kind of a, um, I think Ian Curtis, which we'll go into, but he was very into uh, a lot of nuanced stuff, as you can tell by his writing, I guess. Uh, he, was, he was always into poetry, always doing a lot of drugs and things like that. So I think he... Uh, he was very into German culture, even growing up as a teenager, and he's only 21 in 1978. So, you know, when you're 21 and you're really into a thing, you're, you know, you're that guy. And I guess that's what they did. So their manager, Rob Gretton, also happened to manage this guy, Tony Wilson, who had a TV show on Granada Television Network called So It Goes, um, and that show is named after a line in Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Anyway, it showcased, like, upcoming punk bands and was kind of switching as as Britain as a whole was switching into the post-punk movement of the music scene. They started showing bands like this, so in September of 1978, uh, after their EP release, they played shadow play on the tv show which is a fantastic song so during this time they like make their way onto a couple of like compilation records of british punk music which i'm sure helped their career like some of their live recordings and stuff so after that because they play tony wilson's show they signed to his record label factory records at the end of 1978 which is a pretty cool record label, which I guess we'll get into when we talk about the release. But the end of 1978, I kind of want to take a moment back to talk about, like, Ian Curtis, who is the singer and kind of the main guy. And he um, had a lot of mental health problems throughout his life. He had depression, and he didn't know he had epilepsy. So he wasn't diagnosed with epilepsy until, I think, 1978 or 1979. And uh, he started having epileptic seizures a lot, and he, like, had no way to control them at the time. So 
I don't think he was quite like it wasn't totally affecting the band yet, but he was like missing practice or he would leave the recording studio for like two hours, have a seizure and come back and like not tell anyone. And he had like a really messed up life. Like it's very, it's kind of sad. And he was also married to this woman, Deborah Curtis, and apparently they had a horrible marriage, which is crazy. I mean, I guess things were different in the 70s, but to be married when you're like 20 years old, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Wow. Um, I can't imagine that. And uh, it's it kind of sad. So anyway, he is kind of the poster child of this band, though. He has such a unique voice and, and uh, he's writing all these songs and he's fantastic. I mean, he's like a fantastic musician. So January of 1979, on the 13th of that month, Ian Curtis appears on the cover of NME for their January edition of the magazine, which is like a huge deal. That's still a credible magazine that I read and definitely when I was first getting into music journalism read a lot. Also in 1979 the beginning they recorded a session with John Peel like a Peel session for BBC Radio which is so cool. It's crazy that they got one of those before they had even released a full-length record. Yeah that is what's crazy and it's yeah so it's really cool to go back and listen to that because I, I think I mean especially the two other British bands we've done on this podcast but when bands have a peel session, you get to see, like, how they evolved live by listening to that, you know, and it was before they put out a record. That's a good point to make, which is, like, crazy that they, they were on BBC, which is, like, the biggest British media figurehead, whatever the word is there, uh, entity, the biggest British media entity, and they got a peel session, which, like, Velvet Underground and all these, like, legendary bands are doing peel sessions, and so that's cool. I mean, that's, like, a cool, like, nugget of history that you can, like, pause the podcast or listen to after and like go listen to their peel session it's like on youtube and that's really cool so now we get into their first record so in april of 1979 they recorded their first record unknown pleasures which is probably their most popular album this is like that t-shirt with the weird white lines that look like mountain topography or whatever that you see and there's all these memes and stuff and so i personally think this is like I use the word hits loosely, but I think this is the record that had, like, the hits that you know when you listen to Joy Division and Closer, their second record, was a more cohesive album, in my opinion. Anyway, so they recorded this at Strawberry Studios in Stockport, England, really close to Manchester, and it was produced by Martin Hannett, which we'll get into in a second, and the artwork, which is, like, the main Joy Division thing, is, like, this artwork. If you know nothing about Joy Division, you've seen the t-shirt, whatever. I can't, like, stress that enough. It was made by Peter Seville, and he was the graphic designer for Factory Records. So it's really cool. Um, in other podcasts, we've talked about people who did kind of art like, a, you know, Raymond Pettibon with Black Flag or whatever. So Peter Seville really did contribute to the aesthetic and kind of branding of this band, maybe without realizing it. But he also was in charge of kind of Factory Records' visual legacy. Um, so I want to take a minute to talk about Martin Hanna as a producer before we talk about the actual release of the record. So I guess we can talk about the sound of this record or, or what you think about the record. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think Unknown Pleasure, well, first of all, I mean, it is, it is just like one of the greatest rock albums ever. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's not even my favorite of the Joy Division stuff personally, but it is like it deserves all the hype it gets i mean that the album art alone is like so iconic like it's I, iconic of just an era because it was yeah. one of the first 
true post-punk releases, like, commercially released, and, yeah, that artwork is, like, iconic, and it, as a record, it's as iconic as, like, Velvet Underground and Nico to me, like, you right, see that, I literally definitely. have the poster in my house yeah, still I've, to this day, so. I have, uh, two Unknown Pleasures <laughs> t-shirts, yeah. like, yeah. I, I don't care, <laughs> like, yeah. it's, uh, it is a great image, and I actually didn't know this until recently, but I, I always thought it was, like, a mountain typography, yeah, yeah. but it's actually, like, a Peter described it as the death of a star. Oh wow! Like it's the yeah, interesting. It's like the typography, or I don't know what the right word. Yeah, but it's yeah, just yeah, like the, the like wavelengths kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. That's kind of crazy. That kind of almost goes back into Joy Division lyrics. Uh, yeah, both both of those album covers. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. weirdly <laughs> predict predict things. Yeah, and, that is a little bit of foreshadowing. Yeah, That's crazy, especially because um, I don't even think. From what I've heard, I don't even think he listened to the records when yeah, he made no, the album. He didn't. Like, yeah, he didn't. He, he, he knew yeah. what they sounded That's like. Wild. But That's the weird thing about this almost. band is all the weird coincidences and kind of foreshadowing that did happen. That's that's uh that's kind of heavy that's wild um yeah so the sound itself though um if you've heard joy division songs you've probably heard stuff off this record and man it's great it's a great record i don't know we can kind of get into that i guess before we talk about the actual production stuff but like you have his voice kind of floating over everything but it's all very much driven kind of drum sound throughout and there's a lot of like echo delay and reverb on it and it's just so wonderfully produced by Martin Hannett and a lot of times in studio they were all like they were always being told to tone things down and make it not as loud and make it not as heavy and make it more listenable and like they didn't and I'm glad you know because they made this like cavernous just sounding record you know yeah like something something about the style of that record and something I think that needs to be mentioned is like when people think of Joy Division they think of Ian Curtis like immediately. I think almost everyone mm-hmm. does, like yeah. including myself yeah. for sure. Like he is, he, I mean, we can also talk about that, how he redefined what it means to be a front man. Yeah, he totally like, did. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the fact that At, like, that guy this, was on NME, like, yeah, bef- and the again, separation before, they, before, like, of performance and recording, and then, yeah, kind yeah. of him as a front man. Yeah, he was on Definitely. NME, like, before they put out a record like how crazy is that that he was that like contagious live like the way he performed was so like um i don't know they just yeah had this crazy fan base because it was just this like wild like pull you in kind of like performance of his uh his kind of thing and so yeah anyway yeah because even like even like the sex pistols and like johnny rotten and stuff like it was a totally new thing for sure but as a performance when you get down to it it, it was still like a rock and roll show you mm-hmm. know like they're just going nuts and having you know just like going crazy and punk whatever but like with ian curtis i mean he looked i mean he always at least in all the videos i've seen he just looks uncomfortable mm-hmm. i mean the dance the seizures like yeah it is yeah the and that's the opposite. thing we'll totally go more into it later but he so because of the epilepsy when they got into these heavy tours, he started having seizures on stage. And before he had people, when that happened, people thought it was part of the show. Like they thought he was dancing because before he was having actual seizures, that's how he actually danced. He would like be rolling on the ground and like looking miserable and like uncomfortable. 
I think that's because he was as a person. Like, he wanted to make this music and he was great at it, but he was, like, a very, very depressed person, and that's, like, what came out in his performance style. So he did redefine being a rock frontman, not, like, looking amazing, you know? And they said... Uh, I found a quote, something about, like, their fan base because of him was, like, all these, like, sad guys in gray overcoats or whatever. So it's, like, that it wasn't your typical, it wasn't, like, Beatlemania. It was, like, these people that saw themselves in Ian Curtis. Absolutely. Yeah, so the sound of the record itself, there's a lot of, like, snare drum synth and kind of stuff like that. And I found a quote in um, this In More Audio article. Um, that's pretty interesting. And I talked about Martin Hanna as a producer in general and how we would like say crazy things to them and it would be like, move to the left side of the studio to record this, move to this side, make it sound more yellow or make it sound this. And he's a crazy guy. He was like on heroin and, you know, things that people did in the seventies. And so I found this one quote though, and it was like, while not relying on drum machines, Hannah was not solely satisfied with the dry drum sound and would go into insanely circuitous links to get what he wanted. One example recalls captured drum sounds being sent to an Aratone speaker perched on a toilet in the building's basement bathroom, only to be re-recorded again through a single microphone along with a den of spectral reverb. So... He had some crazy ways of going about things, and he used to, I guess, mix or record these things in AMS 1580 digital delay, which really makes sense when you listen back and hear that delay sound, and he used a Milo's tape echo as well when they recorded onto tape. And he also would push the band into doing a lot of interesting stuff like using shattering glass in studio to make sounds to you know sample and things like that as a record i don't know i i feel like maybe you might want to talk more about the sound or whatever but just as a record all of that created this really unique post-punk sound that no one had ever done before and that's why this record is such an important rock record yeah i think yeah i i personally think especially i did i did a full listen to unknown pleasures today just to kind of like refresh myself because it had been a minute um my joy division obsession was definitely primarily high school yeah. but <laughs> but like Martin Hannett's production is I I think it might it might be the most important thing for the record personally I think I mean, so too yeah because uh, he challenged he made them mad you know he mm-hmm. made Ian Curtis yeah. really mad in studio and uh, really all of them but he he was like I know like I see the sound you right. have and I want to turn it into this and yeah. he did because like it's crazy that ideal for living EP it, it's pretty cool for sure <laughs> I, I definitely like it yeah. it sounds way <laughs> d- it does not sound yeah. like Joy Division yeah like it, it just it doesn't and that's not. what I think he gave them that uh almost that cavernous kind of that quietness that that uh duality of that that it is like this quiet depressing like um record but it's still driving and upbeat and danceable in in a weird twisted way um and it really i think that his lyrics and the poetry of his lyrics wouldn't have carried such a weight if it wasn't done the way it was that his vocals had this like echoey effect and the spacey effect to where it's like um it's like two layers very distinctively to the music because of that um so they released that record in june of 1979 and it sold 10,000 copies of the first press like all like sold out um 
Which is crazy because, like we were saying, like Ian Curtis was this icon before they even release a record. They sell it out. And that was the biggest commercial success Factory Records had ever had so far. And uh, in retrospect, a lot of the, like, Tim and all the guys at Factory Records said this record is what, like, made them a business kind of thing. And made them not just, like, a record label or whatever. So they they blow up now. This is this is they're really a band. They have a record out. Everyone loves the record. I guess specific songs on this record I would kind of like to take a second and talk about. I have I have this list and it's my 100 favorite songs of all time. And I made it like I may write an article about it one day cuz I kind of written blurbs on some of them, but it was more for me to like everyone, you know, the whole point of this podcast is, like, I'm always out at a bar and, like, oh, I've heard of this band. Oh, I love that band. I love this album. Anyway, so I'm always telling people, like, oh, you should listen to this song. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. And I was, like, what are my actual 100 favorite songs of all time? So I made a list. And it kind of taught me a lot about my own music taste, like, what I like in music specifically or what makes a good song. Anyway, Disorder off of this record is, which is the first track on this record, is my number four favorite song of all time. And I think it's, like, the way, like, at the end of the day, like, I listen to music for a lot of reasons, partially because it's my job and I love music, whatever, but, like, that song makes me feel just this very particular, like, hopeful and desolate feeling at the same time. Sure. And that's why I love it so much. And it's literally one of my favorite songs of all time. I'm number four on my list. Uh, It's so good. I listen to that song a lot. There's a ton of songs on here, like She Lost Control. They come in with, like, the little guitar line, and and it's just, like, it's um, this repetitive, like, She's Lost Control, you know, really amazing New Dawn Fades, Candidate, Day of the Lord is probably one of the most popular. I don't know. What are your favorites? I think Shadowplay is definitely one of my favorites, for sure. Mainly, it's actually kind of funny, I... The Killers covered that song back in 2007 or 8, I think, somewhere in there. And I, that was like, I heard that thinking it was a song by The Killers. Yeah. was like obsessed with it in middle school. And then in high school at some point, some of my friends were playing uh, Unknown Pleasures and that came on. I was like, what? Like, what yeah. is going on? Like, <laughs> this is, I thought this was a killer. It, ridiculous. But, um, so that's definitely one of my favorites. I think it's a great I think that song and She's Lost Control, She's Lost Control especially, I think is one of the best, uh... Joy Division songs, Yeah, I think. definitely. Yeah. Just <clears throat> also because, like, with She's Lost Control, I think that song is such a good example of, in my opinion, why, like, again, like, like I was kind of, like, getting to earlier, like, Ian Curtis is, like, definitely the face of Joy Division, and when people think of Joy Division, they think of him, but... All five of them, and that's Martin Hannett included, yeah. all, like, contribute so much to the sound. And I think it's really shown in that song. Like, for example, I mean, people called Stephen Morris, like, the human drum machine. Yeah, and it's, yeah. Like, really because of his, shown- like, accuracy and you yeah. can hear it in the song. I mean, it's actually crazy in the song. Like, when you get into, like, the little breakdown part yeah. in the bridge, like... He literally was, yeah, like the human right. drum machine. It's it, wild. I think that song is a perfect example of that. Yeah, yeah. it's 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 so yeah, it's so true. And yeah, because he's so tight. But like also like with Martin Hannett's production, he's making the drums not even sound like drums. Like yeah. you can't. Yeah. With, I mean, what 1979? I don't even know how many like how many like popular drum machines were really being used at that point. 
That but I mean, like that's organs. when they were all being like created, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, so that it, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, so you can't, you know, he's manipulating all this, this sound, and like maybe some of it's like triggered drum pad stuff, but still, it's like, it sounds like the precursor of a drum machine. But is it is it a drum machine or is it being played by yeah. Stephen Morris live? So it's just like really interesting to me, and also like that bass line that Peter oh, Hook plays yeah. like super high up is one of the best examples of how Peter Hook operates because that that bass line is so like it's so memorable it's like I mean it's like a melody you know it, it's it like is a melody. melodic and that's yeah. that's why I feel like I compare it like a more melodic public image limit because it's like right. each instrument was playing its own melody here definitely and and the way Hannah like was able to manipulate that all into a song is crazy like no one could make this record in 2019 because like it's almost like the technology they were limited to or even opposed to because it was new at the time is what like allowed them the space to like create this weird record i just think it's a really great example of like a resourceful rock record um man it's there's nothing like it like when i heard when i heard this record the first time i just had never heard anything like it like i think it changed my life a little bit like being like 15 on tumblr and finding joy division and just being like this is like a totally different side of music even to the punk i was into and all the british music i was into beyond the darkness and the the lyrical poetry that i love that is all about uh you know feelings and death and and how we exist uh just the sound man like it's like that reverb and it gets just a it's just it's a really touching record but it's still like a rock record uh, it's really crazy anyway you should listen to it if you haven't or revisit like we both did i've been listening to joy division like all weekend and like been a little like i was like why am i sad and i was like oh because i've been listening to joy division all weekend so after this record comes out they make another granada tv appearance and they make another big step so beyond the peel sessions they make their first national tv appearance on bbc's something else which was like a a youth british youth audience kind of targeted show and after that they get a tour and the band finally quits all their day jobs. So that's kind of crazy that he was on the cover of NME. Maybe he didn't have a day job, but still some people in the band had like jobs and they were like in enemy and whatever, which I guess is true. I mean, in Nashville, like, you know, you can hear what's the joke. Like you can hear your own song on the radio, like on the way to your job to wait tables, yeah. or, which is how it really is. Like Definitely. we all have day jobs. But anyway, so they got a tour with the Buzzcocks, supporting the Buzzcocks on their headlining tour. And it was a 24 show run throughout the UK. And it began in October of 1979. And in November, so like while they're on tour, they released the song Transmission, which never made it onto a record. It made it onto a compilation, I believe. But it was released as a single. That's a really great song, too. Yeah, yeah. that is a great one. So 1980, we get into... There's a lot to unpack here. So this is one yeah. year, but this yes. is like all the stuff. So they got a headlining European tour in 1980. So like they've only been a band for really two, three years. Because they started in, I would say... 77 even though they formed in 76 they get a headlining european tour and curtis so he's like finally been diagnosed with epilepsy on top of this his marriage is kind of falling apart he has an affair 
he's having an affair that doesn't come out till later with like a, a journalist i guess who she also did something else anyway it's from belgium Be- yeah I belgian think. journalist yeah. and so his marriage is really bad i can't imagine even being married at 22 but anyway he starts his epilepsy is like not really under control because of the tour schedule of things and he has two seizures towards the end of tour and they happen after shows so the band's like a little worried not as worried as they should be they they finish out the tour and he's like okay for the moment but he's like his epilepsy is really getting bad and it's also contributed to by like because he has depression and stuff and that's not being managed it makes that disease worse and because his life is stressful and he's on tour all the time and he's in the studio with this crazy guy and surrounded by pills and this and that you know it's not good for him it's really sad to see like such a young artist like declining so so soon into his career but that's kind of the headspace he was in and that's the headspace he was in writing all of the stuff for closer which is their second record so march 1980 they get off tour and get hannah in the studio again they record and produce this record in Britannia Row Studios in London, which is like a famous studio. Pink Floyd recorded the wall there. Bjork has recorded some stuff there. So they're kind of in this historic space recording closer as a record. I do want to talk about, so while they're recording, they also recorded like these two singles they released and it's Atmosphere was the A-side and Dead Souls was the B-side. It was released on, like, a French independent label. I want to take a moment to talk about the song Atmosphere because it is so important. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Those two might be... Atmosphere might be my favorite song by them. It is I think, yeah, man, I think Disorder will always be just because it is one of my literal favorite songs I've ever heard in my life, but Atmosphere is probably my second favorite song by them. I, like... I had, like, a friend from, like, high school who, like, messaged me on Twitter after I had... I guess tweeted something about Joy Division was like, hey, like, I've heard the song Atmosphere and it's my soul, like, quote unquote soul song. He was like, it's my soul song. Like, can you help me get into Joy Division through that? And I was like, that's the best entry point you could have given me. Like, I can work with that. Like, if you like that song, I know exactly what you're going to like out of their discography. That one doesn't even, like, that song doesn't even really have any of the, like, rock and roll stuff that something like, you know, most of Unknown Pleasures has, like, and you know we'll get into closer of yeah, course like yeah. which is definitely a little farther away from from rock and roll but yeah like i i think that's i find that really interesting me too definitely. it sounds so different from their first release so it kind of is a precursor because they recorded this the same time as closer i i assume uh, i'm pretty sure that's right so i think they recorded it around the same time and it really is like a precursor because they released it before the record to like what closer would sound like yeah. atmosphere is like one of the most perfect songs ever made i feel like it should be at the end of like a million movies and i don't know it's just yeah. it feels like flying to listen to and it's it's heavy but it's uh it's kind of up in the air at the same time and it's a really really perfect song i mean it's like a Definitely. perfect song and it, it it like this may be like a totally sacrilegious comparison to make but it like makes me it's almost like with or without you by u2 and not not at all in the sense that like i'm comparing joy division to u2 i, I guess you could make well, a comparison u2 there. was 
heavily yeah. influenced by them yeah for sure, well yeah so. yeah so i mean i feel like Nothing that just that. those songs kind of remind me of each other if that gets you maybe the vibe yeah. if you haven't heard the song and i'm trying to explain it to you in <laughs> words which i feel cannot even do it justice and i think you should listen to it as soon as you can after you listen to this podcast it's, um it's very like i i mean i i when i think of atmosphere i definitely one of the first things i think of is like so many songs by the cure yeah like oh the, yeah the tone yeah. and the tempo the reverbs the echo the chimes like the chimes are one of the yeah. biggest parts of it i mean that for make, example, gives like it like plain, that mystical yeah like feeling. plain song is mm-hmm. that is that it plain yeah, song on disintegration yeah. like that's i mean that song came out like 10 years later and it sounds so much like I mean, I know The Cure were around the same, you know, they were yeah. starting off at the same time But they were still, Division, like, didn't hit their stride Right, later, like, yeah. yeah, and even, like, even The Cure's, like, more post-punk stuff, like, uh, like Faith, for example. I mean, like, mm-hmm. that record was 1981, and to me, I was actually listening to that today as well, and to me that sounds like such a response to closer like, yeah, abs- yeah. And a- and that's a really good point like, yeah and i think yeah similar. i just think it's so important to talk about these singles because it really shows their turn not only their turn to maybe more gothic sounding stuff and more nuanced uh post-punk dance music but the genre as a whole turns here because they recorded really closer but these singles while we're talking about it like atmosphere and stuff really showed what you could make post-punk into like that it was a like they branched off into the gothic rock genre and this is where it happened in march 1980 like this is where goth rock is like being invented and they were one of the pioneers like i can confidently say that like um oh man that song is amazing it's amazing because at that point you had like in the flat field by Bauhaus, I believe was that seventy nine eighty. Yeah, yeah, and that's a, a that's great like classic, classic, rock, great yeah. record. But like, it's still not quite as me, advanced. Yeah, to in me, that genre. Yeah, yeah, it's still it still has that kind of like what Unknown Pleasures has that mm-hmm. rock that like the the song the, rock the songwriting it, is based yeah. on rock. Yeah. It's just the production and. Um, I mean, Unknown Pleasure is even more so than in the flat field has the, the rock post-punk stuff, yeah. production going for it. <clears throat> yeah, the yeah. Rock, yeah. And like Gang of Four's Entertainment, a lot of people consider that one Ooh, of the best post-punk man. albums. Yeah, and it totally is. It's, it's I love great. That yeah. But it's still, it's still, it's still also very reminds me, based, yeah, it yeah. reminds me more of The Clash than mm-hmm. something like Joy Division or, or, or even Bauhaus and yeah. those first couple Susie and the Banshees records. Yeah, for sure. Man, yeah, so important, important stuff. So so I guess they are, maybe they're still on their European tour on another tour in 1980. And um, so he starts having really bad seizures, like, on stage at this point. Ian Curtis does. So they've released these singles, and, you know, they have this record in the books ready to, you know, it's getting mastered, released, whatever, and he starts having really bad seizures on stage, and people think it's part of the performance. It's, it's really sad, and um, on April 7, 1980, Ian Curtis attempts suicide, and so he's on tour, and he tries to overdose on phenobarbitone, which is his anti-seizure medication, because he's very, like, embarrassed and ashamed of what the audience thinks of him and what his fans think, and he doesn't want to do this anymore, and things are really hard for him. That night, they were supposed to play a show at, or 
the next night, I guess, they were supposed to play a show at Derby Hall in England, which is, like, a big deal at the time, and they had to play, like, a performance where Alan Hempsall of Crispy Ambulance and Simon Topping of A Certain Ratio came in as the singers, and people were mad. Like, uh, Topping came back out at the end to sing, like, the last two to four songs, I believe, and the audience throws beer bottles at him on stage, and they end the show. So after that, the band is concerned about Ian Curtis, as they should be. They cancel all the April shows, so they're like, we're going to take a break for a month or whatever. Unfortunately, Joy Division, three years into their career, plays their final show on May 2nd, 1980 at High Hall, which is a venue at the University of Birmingham. Weirdly, uh, you know, poetically enough, this is the only ever recorded performance of their song Ceremony, which is the last, uh, one of the last songs Ian Curtis wrote for Joy Division. I'm sure that he had some unfinished things or wrote some other things. So Ceremony, you probably know as a New Order song because this band became New Order, some of the members, which we'll get into, um, and they turned it into a different song, but Ian Curtis wrote Ceremony, which is interesting because compared to the other New Order stuff, it's pretty dark, um, lyrically. So that's, like, believed to be one of the last songs he ever wrote, and that's the only time he ever performed it, sadly enough. So they play this show. They don't know it's their last show. Like, a couple weeks later, they have this American tour scheduled. It's their first American tour. They've never played a show in the United States, much less a headlining tour. And Ian Curtis, a few months before, his wife Deborah files for divorce. So there's this impending divorce lawsuit out. And his health is even worse. He's having seizures way more than he ever was before. And he spoke to his band members and their manager about how he was, like, ashamed of how the American audience would, like, react to him. He was like, I know I'm going to be having seizures on stage if I go do this, and I don't want them to see me like that. I'm scared. And no one no one was definitely concerned enough. You know, they should have canceled this tour, whatever. I mean, you can't, you know, you can't say you should have done this. But anyway, like, people weren't really paying attention to what's going on, or maybe he wasn't letting off how bad his health really was. So, May 17, 1980, they're supposed to fly out of Manchester to go on tour in America the next morning. And Curtis, Ian Curtis returns home and he's, like, mad at his wife and asks her to drop the divorce and, like, go stay with her parents that night. And he tells her he's going to watch the German film Strazek, which is uh, directed by Warner Herzog. And he's like, that's what I'm going to do tonight. And he tells his band members he'll meet with them very, very early in the morning at the airport. And um, that night he watches the movie uh, very early in the morning on May 18th in the early hours of the morning. And he uh, he hung himself in his kitchen. So he, you know, he had tried to commit suicide earlier. And so he did it a different way this time, unfortunately. And Deborah comes home. Uh, when he doesn't show up at the airport and discovers his body. So Ian Curtis dies at 23 years old, which is like really a, you know, I hate to get so heavy on this podcast, but it's really, that's really sad. He was so, so talented. Uh, Man, that's just rough. And so Joy Division is not a band. They have to cancel their tour because they aren't Joy Division without Ian Curtis. Uh, Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty dark. And it's, it's, you know, knowing that it ends that way, which I'm sure a lot of people who listen to the podcast knew it would end that way, 
you can kind of go back into his lyrics and find that he has just this great dissonance almost with being alive and and as a lot of people do unfortunately he acted on it but you know if you look at the lyrics like even disorder particularly he's like i have the spirit i have the feeling you know and man like the dying star thing you just look back at all of these signs and and realize as much as that thematically contributed to their work, it was foreshadowing to, unfortunately, Curtis's, like, impending doom. Yeah, it's it's rough to talk about. They posthumously release Closer, which, I mean, I think is a good thing to do. He would want the record out, whatever, and it really sets their legacy, I think. And it's like, this is the last thing he did before he died. His mate, you know, mate, one of the last things he did was make this record... Um, so in July of that year, they released Closer, which I think is a fantastic record, and it peaks at number six on the UK charts, and apparently the other members, I think particularly Sumner, didn't like that the, the like, doominess and darkness or whatever loudness was toned down on this record, which is crazy to me because I think it's, like, a perfect record. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, we should, let's talk about Closer. I know that's hard to move on after mentioning something so heavy but like I would like to like talk about the record and like what you know this is like Ian Curtis's legacy and this is a really really important record so we've actually mentioned this record before when we talked about uh we mentioned Danny Brown on the Death Groats podcast and he named his album Atrocity Exhibition uh which is the first track of the record Closer by Joy Division so I kind of want to mention that because this goes to show like we talked about how Bauhaus and all this stuff is kind of already forming goth rock, whatever. All these bands are influenced by Joy Division, even to today's hip-hop artists. Like, Absolutely. Every, I don't know anyone who's listened to this record that hasn't been touched by it or influenced right. by it. Yeah. yeah, man, this is a wonderful record. Uh, there's a lot of good songs on here. Yeah, I remember back in high... I think it was high school when... It, it was even before Atrocity Exhibition was coming out by Danny Brown, and in some interview he, he was like, yeah, yeah I'm really into... Yeah. Joy Division I right that. now. It was a, vi- yeah. it was a noisy interview before sure. oh, he released really? the yeah. record. And it was before he had announced plans, but he he like uh, he talked about that. He was like, I want to make like a goth rap, re- you know, like an emo goth like, right. rap record. Yeah. And he did. Yeah. He talked about Joy Division. He talked about like Ian Curtis, like and yeah. how like much he looked up to him, yeah, which is it, interesting. I remember reading that interview too. Yeah, and Earl Sweatshirt has also cited mm-hmm. Joy Division as a big influence. I mean, I with his like second, well, his second studio record definitely mm-hmm. you can see definitely it, yeah. can see it you can see sure. it in just so many artists that they i mean this was just a really big turning point for post-punk which you know really had its stint in the 80s but like we wouldn't have what happened in 90s like as far as the cool stuff that happened in the 90s i have a lot to say about 90s music and where that went <laughs> but you know as far as like the cool punk stuff that was happening in the 90s and stuff we wouldn't have that without like the turn of events that happened into to goth rock and like dance punk they took it they i think with this record joy division specifically which later affected the genre but joy division as far as their own sound took things away from like these direct art rock influences and and rock as a trope in general or a format to make a record and they made something just totally totally you know you can tell they challenge themselves totally different here and it is like a goth record and it you know the it, from the album cover to the song titles to the lyrics to the sound itself 
it's a lot different uh, than the first one. I think it's a really great cohesive record. I think it's a great record. Definitely. I, it's my personal favorite by them. It is. It's That one is closer to one of my favorite albums of all time. Big influence for me personally. And it's definitely... I think it's harder to get into than Unknown Pleasures. I think, yeah, I think it, it helps to, like, listen to Unknown Pleasures first because, like, with with any band, it's kind of easier to get into an album or a band if they sound like something you're familiar with. So sure. Joy Division, or Unknown Pleasures by Joy Division, you have the, you're like, okay, well, this still has the 80s rock or late 70s rock sound. This one really doesn't sound like that at all, you know? Like, it sounds like Joy Division, but it doesn't sound like anything right. you've heard before. I mean, there's um, songs on this, like, I mean, well, my, my personal favorite song on here is Decades. Oh, man. track, Especially yeah. knowing the story like the, mm-hmm. their story with ian curtis like that and the fact that like we were saying how it was released post his yeah, death yeah. like decades as a closing track reminds me a lot of when david bowie released black star and his closing track mentioned his death and we i remember listening to it the friday it came out mm-hmm. and like just thought oh this is like a theatrical david bowie song and he dies what two days later or a week something, later or something yeah, like very close very after fast, and then yeah. you go back and you listen it's like now you see me up in the sky like whatever that's cr- like chill yeah. like i get chills when i think about it like especially just because we were there when it, you know i was in college when it happened and david bowie dies and we're like oh my god he just released a record like right. that's crazy that's kind of the same thing here, even though Ian Curtis is already dead. You listen to decades and you're like, oh, damn. Like, it makes you think that he's yeah. like Dave, like with David mm. Bowie with Black Star. I mean, it's like he wanted he to put out this attention- piece of art to and, intentionally tell people yeah, this is knew, my story. He knew and he knew it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like he knew. Which he, is sad. I mean, I think yeah. everyone knew he was sad, but he really knew that he was going to die, you know, die from these things happening. And yeah. It's oh, it's chilling. It's, but I mean, yeah. it makes really great art. Uh, not not the not the suicide part, but just his, him as an artist is like he was this amazing artist, and he did turn his life story into the best piece of art possible while he still had the chance. And um, it's really amazing. I mean, isolation. You talk about a lot of like hard themes here. Like there is a theme. Like there's a song called Isolation, but there is a theme of just like like the isolation of one's own mind and and uh, time passing and. It's uh, it's crazy. It's a really great record, and like all the things we talked about with Atmosphere, it really changes the tables for rock music and punk music and 80s music, and it's still cited today, and it's really, really important, and it's a really great, you know, nine-song, 40-minute, cohesive, perfect beginning-to-end record. Um, like, the pace of the record itself, Atrocity yeah. Exhibition is... Uh, I think I had to listen to that song probably three times the first yeah. time I heard it. I mean, it's, it's like a, a lot to process. It's, it's a bizarre a weird, intro It's like to it an album. only the only other song, and I don't mean the sound-wise, but it may be format of song it reminds me of, is like the factory edition of Heroin by the Velvet Underground, the one they recorded live. Not the, not the sound, but maybe the pace and this like back yeah. and forth, up and down. Like I couldn't understand the song in a good way. The first time I heard it, I literally sat down and listened to it like three times before I could like process what was happening in the song and then you end with something like decades i mean that's just a crazy jump there and the record is like a straight road to that and it's wild that you can have such diverse sound on one record while still like having it be this like goth post-punk sound overall the last three songs on the album like i i love the whole thing yeah like starts to slow down after heart and soul for sure the whole thing is great and it definitely is moody throughout but uh 24 hours the eternal 
and decades are all like it just especially those last two like the eternal is definitely doesn't really sound like at least to me it doesn't really sound like anything else from that time i mean it has like that really somber no it's truly distinct and and somber yeah yeah, it really is the piano on that one is really like chilling to me it uh, really kind of brings home this whole thing he's been singing about the whole time and um man record it's a crazy record something also about closer that i think is really important is and we we talked about the artwork a little bit but and i unknown pleasures is definitely like more iconic Mm -hmm. for sure like it's definitely you know like people will see that you know the shirt and be like oh it's or like see the see the image and be like oh it's that shirt you know like i mean there was a time where at like urban outfitters you could get yeah like the unknown pleasures shirt and it said (laughs) wu-tang clan 36 chambers like yeah now there's like all the dumb like yeah like it's it's beyond (laughs) yeah it's it's, like beyond iconic now unfortunately like Like, post icon yeah (laughs) like get a shirt of someone wearing the shirt like it's it's just like beyond for sure but that being said i think closer that album art is to me at least i i think it's shown more uh throughout the years as an inspiration yeah i mean like that the just the way it is the, the way it's laid out the really simple like helvetica times new roman yeah style. the graphic design on this was way peter seville was literally yeah. ahead of his time and i think that's factory records the reason when people think of factory records they think of the the imagery and the graphic design right. on it goes to show the importance of branding even today Absolutely. but like this is literally i mean this is a record released in 1980 and it looks like stuff you're seeing today it's like um it just has this like you know black and white image uh you know and then it's like the box around it the yeah the like helvetica type font and it's it's very uh very referential to the sound it's kind of like gothic and yeah but it is great graphic design it is very iconic and referenced like as far as in circles of music people i think yeah like how many i mean because that that image is uh from a mausoleum in italy Mm -hmm. i think yeah and like i mean i can't I also can't even really think of anything that, like, the whole, like, I mean, I don't know if that's, like, Greco-Roman or whatever, but, like, when I see that album cover, like, that, those statues in that cemetery, that's, like, that's what it makes me think of. Yeah. And the black and white, too. And I can't, I just, I can't think of anything around that time or before that that was like that, and that is, like, I don't, especially now, I feel like that is one of the most popular things to, like, that combined with the simple style Times New Roman typeface, like, super, you know, it's just Joy Division, Closer, that's it, and, like, or, I don't even know if it says, does it say Joy Division on the cover? No, it it just just says Closer, closer yeah, like, it has, like, a box around, yeah, yeah, it's just no, it's incredibly ahead of its time, and it's, it's a big contrast to, like, where art was headed, in the 80s i mean everything was flashy and big and as 80 you know the 80s and this record is like it's so minimal which says a lot to their sound too like the the like softness that came along with all of that heaviness kind of thing and it's it really is yeah like the graphic design is really important to point out here like it may you know it branded the band as they were and so after this, you know, they have their two records out. Joy Division is over, unfortunately. But the band reforms this new order and they release Ceremony, which is Ian Curtis's last song he wrote, as their debut single in 1981. And Bernard Sumner is 
uh, he moves to vocals, and then Morris is the drummer. His girlfriend, Gillian Gil- Gilbert, or Gillian Gilbert, is uh, the keyboardist and second guitarist for New Order, and New Order is a whole other thing I could do a whole other podcast on. But after this, like, posthumously, uh, there's two compilations that are released, and one is Substance, which is all Joy Division songs, and then there's the compilation Total, which is New Order and Joy Division, which is all the unreleased single stuff that didn't make it on an album. There's a documentary about Joy Division, which I, or Ian Curtis, which I haven't seen, and there's a few, it's hard to find, there is one concert video, like a f- one full length with the set list and everything that was released, and it's uh, Joy Division Live at University of London, which is a really interesting watch if you want to get into Ian Curtis's performance style and maybe understand that a little more. There's a few other videos and things out there, but that's like the posthumous like final releases. It's those compilations, which you can you can find. But yeah, I mean, I think Joy Division overall is just iconic as a band because they have this mythical story. Obviously, as sad as Ian Curtis's death is, it really made them this, like, you know, mystic, legendary status in rock, you know, unfortunately, like, as tragedy does. And, like, once again, on, like, the design of things, like, that really, like, sealed in their legacy, I think. You can even buy Doc Martens now that have, like, the etching of that first, of the Unknown Pleasures record cover on it. You know, people just really run with that, but I think it, it goes to show, like, how innovative of a band they really were and how important they were to rock and indie music and post-punk and goth and music in general because of the boundaries they pushed and things they changed and their innovative way of writing and recording and producing and things. So that is pretty much everything you need to know about Joy Division. I totally encourage you to research on your own, and since there's only two records, you have no excuse but to listen to them, because it's, like, way less records than most of the bands we talk about, especially our last podcast. So anyway, that is Joy Division. Thank you, Alex, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And thank you guys for listening.